2: And you're listening to Sorry Partner.
0: Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players – Brought to you by Bridge Partners and Friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with English-Scottish champion Samantha Punch about when hobbies become passions and the role of empathy in partnership dynamics. Plus, she shares her top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz! Hi, partner!
1: Hi, partner. How are you, Catherine?
0: Oh, Jocelyn, I am great, but I have got a gripe for you today.
1: Oh, bring it on.
0: (laughs) Why can't people claim when they've got all the tricks? What is wrong with them? I was playing a hand (laughs) yesterday and these people, we took the first two tricks, they took a trick, we took a trick, and then they took the rest of them and they're just sitting there taking their time and drawing it out. I understand sometimes... I do the same thing if I'm not quite sure of, say, you know, I've miscounted or I've lost concentration. Very rarely does that happen, but, you know. Oh, I know, I know, I know. On the rare occasion, I might play an extra trump just to completely make sure I've drawn all the trump. But they're sitting there. Trick. Pause, 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 pause. <laughs> <laughs> trick. If I could have reached through the computer, I would have done something not very nice. Let's just say say that. I remember whinging about this to someone quite a long time ago. And they were saying, look, you know, you've just got to get philosophical. You've got to relax. You can't let this sort of nonsense rattle you. And I wouldn't say I was rattled.
1: I was just irritated. (laughs) I can hear that. (laughs) (laughs) But it is very irritating. And how about also when you claim and you explain your claim and they sit there. (laughs) <laughs> you yes. just sit there They yes. don't accept, and then after time it just times out and it's rejected and it's like okay now we have to play this out for real I just like it's so rude I had a hand the other day my
0: partner was playing you know and it's dummy I know I'm meant to sit there and say nothing but she claimed you know like that ninth trick she claimed there was it was so obvious the course of the play I'm sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. And I had already started writing into the chat box, would somebody please accept or deny the claim? I mean, I couldn't understand why they deny it, but I thought, let's give them the option here. (laughs) And then, of course, just as I was about to press send, one of them must have accepted the claim. So it was all okay. But, oh, it drives me crackers.
1: You know how we talk about specialized bridge lingo? Yeah. I wonder if there's... A term for these behaviors. Well, I could give you a couple. (laughs) No, I know. But if if anybody has any suggestions or if they're actually in use, some kind of uh, slang term or in on the joke kind of term that people are using to describe, A, people who don't claim and waste all of our time, or B, people who refuse to accept a legitimate claim There's got to be a good term to describe these people. And I want to know it. I want to use it.
0: Yeah, send it in. (laughs) That'd be great.
1: And we'll be right back.
2: Hi, I'm Midge from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and I'm a listener, supporter of Story Partner. What I love about the show is that it takes Bridge seriously, but it doesn't take it too seriously. It's a lot of fun, anecdotes, and comments from the interviewers, and they ask great questions. They really keep the tone fun, but you learn a lot and have fun learning it. Here's how I supported the show. I went to their website and found a link
0: on how to support the show, and it was very easy. If you're thinking about supporting the show, please do. We want to keep it on the air. And we're back. So, Jocelyn, we have some mail in the mailbag. Would you like me to read you a couple of letters? Please. This first one is from Clip in Syracuse, New York. It's just a short one. It's very sweet. He says, hello, I have been really enjoying your podcast. I especially like the kibitzing at the beginning and the discussions between yourselves and with your guests about worst and best hands.
1: Oh,
0: nice. (laughs) Yeah, very nice. Thanks. Thanks for the feedback. And then he says, this story is from 20 years ago. says, my son was attending the University of Rochester and I drove over from Syracuse to play in a local game with him. On one hand, we were having a rather long auction and the opponent to my right, when it was her turn to bid, said, I don't know what to do, I've run out of pass cards. (laughs) and then he says his son immediately grabbed all the pass cards in his bidding (laughs) box and handed them to her and said here take mine I never use them (laughs) 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 then he says please keep up the good work on the podcast sincerely Cliff thanks Cliff that's very funny that's great well I hope your son's still playing and if so I hope he's listening to the podcast and if he is hi Josh All right. I have another letter for you, Jocelyn. Excellent. So this letter begins, Aloha. 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 And it is from Bill in Hawaii. Hi, Bill. Aloha, Bill. (laughs) Bill says, my partner and I flew from Hawaii to Austin to participate in a tournament. We are intermediate players. We have had gambling three-no-trump on our convention card for six to 12 months, but never actually used it until that tournament. And then he just briefly describes it. He says, gambling three-no-trump is if you open three-no-trump, if you have a seven-card minor suit with an ace-king-queen and no outside entries. And if partner has stoppers in the other suits, they pass. And otherwise you bid four clubs and partner passes or corrects to diamonds. So that's just a little explanation for the people who might not know that convention.
1: And it comes up never. never. I mean, very rarely. No, very rarely. But when it does, <laughs> it's exciting. It is very exciting. So Bill says
0: In a bracketed Swiss game, my partner opens three no trump. I alert and it passes around to me. I look and I have a handful of points, but no stopper in spades. And so I bid four clubs. My partner bids four diamonds and I am asked to explain. The person next to him doubles. I pass, wondering how bad we're going to go down. The other opponent takes the double out, and the opponents play in four hearts. One of the first plays is diamonds, and my partner roughs it. As a result, we set them. As you can imagine, there is much confusion and frustration at the table. It turns out, my partner correctly bid three no trump with a lovely club suit. Then his brain did a reset and looked at three no-trump pass, four clubs pass, and decided clearly that I was using statement to ask if he had a major. And so he bid four diamonds to say no, while also having no diamonds in his hand. <laughs> we ended up with a nice score, as our partners would have made four hearts without the misinformation. But the embarrassment at our bidding miscue still stings. Ouch. Love the podcast. From <laughs> Bill.
1: <laughs> wow. That's one of those zigging zagging stories like you think yep. it's gonna go this way yeah. and then it goes that way and no surprise <laughs> you know it's in the category
0: of the bittersweet happy outcome but alas bidding misunderstanding yeah I think I'd take the happy outcome in this situation but I'm sure you two have sorted it out by now <laughs> and just there's one more letter oh good yes and this letter is from Wayne. And he is writing to us from Nantucket. Ah. Hi, ladies. Here is my funny story. Then he explains, I was a Geelong boy. And Geelong is a country town not far from Melbourne in Australia. So he says, I was a Geelong boy who discovered that the way to be successful in sport is to play minority sports. So I played croquet and royal tennis, or real tennis as it mainly goes by now, all around the world. After many years on a professional circuit, I ended up being head pro at a country club on the island of Nantucket. Several years ago, the club's bridge director announced that he would soon be retiring. This threw the bridge committee into mass confusion. Where on earth will we find a new director? So naturally I told them, don't worry, I'll take over these duties. After all, Had not I played tons of 500 with my parents and grandparents growing up. That's your game, Catherine. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my starter game too. And he says, it can't be that different, can it? And we all know, yes, it can. <laughs> so he says, I downloaded the study guides and took the bridge director's exam five or six months later. At the end of the exam, I took my papers up to the front desk and asked, how do I fill out this spot here? It was the place where I was supposed to write in my ACBL number. Oh, no. <laughs> when asked i told them i don't have a number the person said you do play bridge don't you and wayne said uh sort of as i shrugged my shoulders it turns out that somewhat miraculously i passed the exam and now i quite happily direct our weekly bridge sessions and happily i can also say that my bridge game has improved along the way as well
1: yes croquet and bridge and what was the Real tennis. Real royal tennis. Yes.
0: But yes. which one does he like the best? Wow, well, maybe <laughs> he'll have to ride in and let us know. I'm sure he loves bridge the best.
1: Yes. I love that. I just cannot imagine. First of all, the idea of being a bridge director and having all those rules at your fingertips and knowing how to employ them is so daunting. And if you're not even a player and you just took that <laughs> on, it's just Unfathomable! Wow, I'm impressed.
0: Well, I'm impressed too. I also wonder if it's you know a case of not knowing what you're getting into. But hey, <laughs> good on you, Wayne. I want it's that yeah. country town spirit that that took you all the way to the top. <laughs> right. If he
1: had any idea, he might not have volunteered so quickly.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Wayne and Cliff and Bill for writing in. We're so grateful for the letters.
1: Yes, it's, they're wonderful. And if you have any great stories to share about funny things that have happened at the table you can send us an email at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or on instagram or you can send us a voice message and these links are all in the show notes and on the website along with some other good stuff coming up next our interview is samantha punch English-Scottish champion Samantha Punch has represented Scotland on the Open team in the European qualifiers, in the women's team in the World Championships, and in the mixed team in the European Championships. She has won five Lady Milne trophies, the Commonwealth's transnational teams, and many national events. She is also a sociologist. Working on developing the field of bridge and mind sport. She founded BAMSA, Bridge, a mind sport for all, to use academic research in collaboration with bridge organizations to transform the image of bridge, to increase participation in the game, and to enhance its sustainability. We began by asking if she'd had any interesting hands lately.
2: Okay, so I had quite a fun hand this week. I'll tell you the bidding first. I opened four diamonds, non-vulnerable against vulnerable, and it went past and partner raised to five diamonds, and that went past, past, double. So now you're on lead as the doubler, and you've got two small, queen to three, ace king to four, king, queen to four. What do you lead? I would think
1: I would lead a major, but I don't love the holdings. So I was thinking maybe
2: I'd lead the nine of spades.
0: Yeah, I think
1: I would too.
2: Okay, well, well done. You're taking me three off doubled, but uh, my opposition unfortunately went for uh, the King of Clubs and it's the only lead to let me make it because I had two small, void, uh, Queen-Jack nine to six, Ace-Jack ten, nine to five. So the King of Clubs lead let me set up my clubs. Partner's hand was Ace-King to five, King-Jack to six, ten of diamonds, ten rag of diamonds and a void. So the ten of diamonds is a very important card too. But what was fun about the hand was our teammates were defending two diamonds the other way up. In their room, my hand hadn't opened and they'd opened a club. And the next hand with the majors had bid two diamonds to show the majors and my hand had passed. So they now defended two diamonds but the other way up and they beat two diamonds. Whereas I was got to make five diamonds (laughs) doubles. That was a fun hand. (laughs)
1: That's so wild. And again, it just shows where the luck of the game comes in in this kind of sneaky backdoor way in that you had the same cards, you're playing the same game, but because of who the opponents were, because of who the players are, it changes it up completely.
2: When did you first become aware of Bridge? Well, it was actually when I was in Brazil when I was 21. I was traveling in Brazil for a month and a fellow traveler one evening said that they would teach us this game that was kind of like Bridge but not Bridge. I presume it was Mini-Bridge, but, you know, I wasn't aware of Mini-Bridge at the time. But I knew it was like this was a card game that I was going to really love to learn one day. Um, Do you mean like 500 or something like that? Or is there actually a game called Mini-Bridge? Yeah, I mean, certainly in the UK, we have a a version of Bridge that's a simplified version of Mini-Bridge. It's called where you have simplified bidding at the start. So you kind of get quickly into playing the hands. So I presume that's what he taught us. But for me, that was the seed was sown and I knew I wanted to learn full bridge, but it wasn't until eight years later that I actually took up the game. So I was quite a late starter. I was nearly 30. What happened between Brazil and when you started to play regularly? Well, there's kind of two things that happened. One was I was at a work training event and everyone was talking about what they'd done at the weekend. And one guy was talking with such passion and excitement because he'd won a bridge tournament. So that kind of reminded me that I definitely wanted to learn. And it was kind of the sparkle in his eyes was really infectious. So I knew it was something that I wanted to do. But also at the same time, I had the opportunity because I finished my PhD and I've been finishing my PhD whilst working full time. So suddenly I had free evenings and weekends. So I thought it was time now to learn a new hobby, but I didn't realize it was just going to take over my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as it does.
1: And how did you come to start playing? Did you just
2: show up at a local club or? Well, I was looking for a new hobby to fill the PhD gap because otherwise I thought I'd end up just watching a lot of telly or going to the pub a lot. So I just literally looked up the number for the Bridge Club in the phone book and I phoned up the Bridge Club and uh, the woman that answered sort of said, oh, well, we're actually got lessons at the moment. And I was quite surprised because she said lessons in the plural. I just assumed I'd go down there one night and they'd teach me and that would be it. But they were already at sort of, they were halfway through a set of 20 lessons. So they brought me around the notes for the first 10 lessons the next day. And they were very excited because I was young. Um, and I was very excited because when I read the 10 lessons, I knew it was something that I was going to enjoy. So I went along to the first lesson. She said, don't bother to pay this week because see if you like it. I said, don't worry. I know I'm going to like it. Take my money. <laughs>
1: What was it about the game that appealed to you right off the bat?
2: Just you saw the possibilities that, you know, it's a problem solving game. So on every hand, there's a problem to solve and you get that opportunity every seven or eight minutes. And there's so many different aspects to it. And I I liked cards as a kid. So I kind of knew that this was going to be the king of card games. How did you go
0: from playing at the club to being ambitious enough to wanting to play at the national level? And I suppose as a sub-question, when did you realize
2: you were quite good at the game? Well, I think there's an easy answer to that is that the great thing about bridge is that it constantly reminds you you're not any good at it, doesn't it? <laughs> That's what level you play at.
1: Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: we're over that. <laughs> well, you can, you can be winning a bunch of stuff and you can think, oh yeah, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting better and I'm, I'm not too bad at this game. And then you can just go and play like a complete idiot. You know, and the game makes you realise that you've just still got so much more left to learn. And that's almost the case for almost any level that you're at. I think even top players, there's still a lot more that we could all be better at all of the time. So,
0: But still, when did you realise you were good at it? And then how did you channel that into the ambition to be wanting to play
2: at an elite level? I think there's two things there. One, one is like an obvious marker that I was getting better and improving was when I first started playing in the trials, I was bottom. And then that was an annual event. And I, I sort of gradually worked my way up to doing better each year. So that was a very visual marker that I was getting better. And you put yourself forward for that? Yeah, I mean, I played in trials when I'm sure people were a bit horrified that I shouldn't <laughs> have been, been playing. I think, you know, sometimes they did make it quite obvious that I shouldn't shouldn't be there because I wasn't ready. But I knew I knew it's what I wanted to do. And I knew that the only way to get better was to play with and against better players and you know you need to play outside your comfort zone in order to get better so you have to get used to being humiliated and laughed at and you have to get tough so one way to do that is to play above yourself
0: and then you obviously were getting better and better and and
2: making it into the teams is that what happened yeah, I mean, I did get quite lucky in, in the women's game. We played the trials and I got actually into the women's team probably way before I should have done. Uh, and obviously I was delighted because I had been, you know, reading a lot and, and working on my game, but it was quite early in my kind of trajectory as a player. But the great thing about that was around that same time, I got to play with a player that was a lot better than me. They saw my performance in that very public event and came back and kind of scrutinized my hands and gave me some good tips about what I needed to address and so I spent some time working on particular aspects that definitely needed improvement. Sounds like you had a mentor there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, having someone that can go through your hands and and spot your weaknesses and, you know, I mean at the time basically I didn't know how to preempt. And they soon sorted that out for me. And (laughs) and probably went probably went too far. I mean, I have a very aggressive preempting style. Um, probably it's it's not everyone's cup of tea opening four diamonds on the hand that I gave you at the start. But I do think it's a winning style. And at the time in Scotland, we weren't very aggressive preemptors. So I learned that it was a winning style to sort of get in there and make the opposition guess. But I, I got a lot of stick for it at start in Scotland because it wasn't the dumb thing in Scotland at the time. Do you and your partner still practice your bidding at the pub? Yeah, it's something we like to do. Yeah, we print out some hands. If certainly If we go on holiday, we take a bunch of hands to bid. Yeah doesn't always end well particularly after a few beers it can end in quite a heated debate but yeah we enjoyed bidding you know improving that dialogue of what do you do several rounds on in the bidding it's it's knowing that so you can't beat that kind of practice to sort of you know everyone knows what to do when you know the first few rounds in the bidding but it's sort of round three or four and you both definitely on the same wavelength so by bidding lots of hands that that helps.
0: What would one of your regular partners say maybe is one of your strengths in the game?
2: Well, unfortunately, it's probably quite a boring strength that I know my system. It's obviously a very boring thing to be good at, but it's a very necessary thing. I do find that you shouldn't really agree to play lots of stuff if you're not prepared to commit to learning it. So I do feel quite strongly about that. So I put a lot of effort in making sure I know it because I just think there's, there's so many other ways to lose imps. This is an easy way to stop losing certain imps. Um, and it's just about being disciplined and not lazy. So I like to try and do that. Well, I'll just shield my eyes and
0: not look at my partner for a moment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What would your partner say maybe is a weaker area of your game? Well, I guess it's related. I'm not particularly happy when partner forgets a system. I'm not very (laughs) (laughs) forgiving. I do find it hard to keep my mouth shut if that happens. So it's something I'm working on. What kinds of things do you say? No, 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 Jocelyn, don't get any ideas. I mean, I I suppose as I played more, I kind of recognized that we all have different strengths and weaknesses and you just have to be a bit more tolerant. And I think we all have certain errors that we get more cross about. So for me, I know that that's one of my weak zones, that that's that's an area that's going to press a button. And that's something that if I want to try and be a better partner, that's something I have to work on. And it's the same with other errors. But that's because you've put in this effort yourself. And so it's that feeling, I
0: imagine that, you know, well, this is something that you've prioritised. Surely you're entitled to have your partner do the same kind of work.
2: Yeah, but maybe maybe I've also got a good memory. So it's easier for me in the same way that, you know, maybe they, they don't want to keep their mouth shut when they see an obvious line where I could have made a contract and I've taken a different line. So I think it when we get angry or frustrated, is it is relative to our particular strengths and weaknesses, and being aware of that is something that we can bring to our improvement of our self in the game. I think that's a really useful observation. I hadn't thought
0: about it that way. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, you're seeing everyone's always seeing something through their own filter, to their own lens. Hmm.
1: Do you think that a bridge partnership is stronger when the two people have similar strengths and weaknesses? Or do you think the bridge partnership can be stronger if they're complementary but not the same? In other words, if one person is stronger at, say, remembering the system and the other person is really good at visualising all the hands right away and finding that that one perfect line because of how the cards must be?
2: I don't think it matters I think there's other elements of partnership dynamics that are probably more important and trying to be empathetic and understanding and on the same wavelength. If you are different and you bring different things to the table, I suppose it's about understanding and being aware of those differences and being forgiving of them. So I think those kinds of partnership aspects and dynamics are more important than whether you both have similar strengths and weaknesses or not.
1: Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
0: Have you ever been in a partnership where it's been a more challenging partnership and you've maybe had to work on it or even maybe had to move on from that partnership? Challenging in what sense? Challenging in the sense that you might each have different frustrations and so it feels maybe emotionally tense to play with that partner.
2: Um yeah, I mean, I think everyone at times has challenging partners, but one thing I do like to do is to talk about those things. I like to just make sure that we're really open and, and upfront about them right from the beginning. It's something that I like to talk as much about partnership strengths and weaknesses as, as what we like and dislike about what happens at the table as well, as well as what we like and dislike about how we're putting our system together, if you see what I mean. So I like to have that conversation early on. What is it that you most love about Bridge? It's such an absorbing game. For me, it's about escapism. It takes me away from work and lets me experience flow. So we talk about flow as when you lose track of time. And I have a, a great example of this. was One of the first nationals that I went to in the States was in Vegas. And I purposely tagged on a few days at the end so that I could go and see Vegas then. I suddenly realized, though, after the 10 days of being in the bridge bubble, I hadn't actually stepped outside the hotel in 10 days. <laughs> And of course, when I told one of my work colleagues this, when I got back home, all it did was reinforce the perception that bridge players are a little strange.
0: You mentioned that you work as an academic sociologist and you've spearheaded research into mind sport. Can you tell us about some
2: of your research and some of the background that has led to this field? Well, I suppose I got into it initially. I mean, it was actually in 2013 I started. It was initially just a hobby on the side. I wanted to interview my bridge heroes like Bob Patman. And the original plan was that it was going to be a retirement book. I was going to do a few interviews every year for a number of years. And then when I retired, I would have this interview data that I could put together as a book. But after I'd done quite a few interviews, I realized it was a bit a bit sad to to wait until retirement to do something with it. And actually, the, the interviews have shed so many different lights and different aspects of the game that I thought actually there could be quite some quite interesting academic papers here around the, the dynamics of partnerships and teams. And so the the idea to actually then switch my research field to looking at sociology of mind sport, the seed was sown for that.
0: What have been some of the findings that it maybe have surprised you or have been particularly interesting?
2: There's lots of different projects and lots of different things. I think as bridge players, we wouldn't necessarily find all the findings particularly surprising because we played a game. But I think what is surprising is for non-bridge players. So even the the academic world has found that many people didn't even know what the word mind sport was. So just something as basic as that, people hadn't come across the term. And then showing that there's an elite level of bridge, people didn't realise it was something that you could do professionally or make a livelihood from. So by writing academic papers on these kinds of things, I think it really helps to show a very different side of the game and kind of breaks down some of that negative images that the game has. Some of the research that I've done around gender has been a bit disappointing, obviously, because I suppose there's been quite a lot of neurosexism that's emerged. Could you say what that term is? Yeah, so neurosexism is when there's kind of negative assumptions and stereotypes attached to the fact that it's assumed that women's brains are not suited to bridge. So women's brains are wired for emotion rather than for logic. And that kind of discourse is very damaging and off-putting, particularly for younger female players coming, younger women players coming into the game.
1: What can be done to counter the neurosexism in bridge?
2: Well, I think it has to be taken seriously by the very top. So the World Bridge Federation, the ACBL, the European Bridge League, et cetera, need to address it in the same way that they've started now finally to address cheating. Um, So I think the first step is that there should be recognition that there is a problem, that gender inequalities and sexism do exist, and, and rather than denying that it is an issue. The second step is to raise awareness of that. And that could include even unconscious bias training, because I think many of the things that are said are not always intentional, but they're so ingrained and so normalized that people don't even realize that they are being sexist. Have you got some examples that you could give us? Well, just even some of the behaviors. So for example, I, I play with a lot of men players and after the game, people will come up and immediately ask them what happened on a board or how did they mm-hmm. bid a hand? And mm-hmm. that used to happen when I was the stronger bidder, but no one would want to know what I bid on the hand or how I'd Addressed it. The assumption is is that conversation is going to be with the the man player in the partnership, and women players end up being quite invisible in these kinds of situations and And that's just my personal example, but that's been echoed many times throughout the research, numerous examples of women being invisible or assumptions being made about their ability, and that leads to opportunities um, being denied and barriers that they face more so than men. So you see a sort of top down approach
1: a deliberate effort by the institutions to re-educate people. What about bringing women up through the ranks so that there are more women playing at the top levels?
2: Well, I think they, that will happen. You know, So, for example, the, th- the third step would be to actually develop uh, inclusivity policies. So in many workplaces, there are these equality, diversity, and inclusion policies nowadays And even in many sports organisations, they exist. But in Bridge, you know, we're lagging behind and and we need to have such a thing to make sure that the game's fully welcoming to all social groups. And it's not just about sexism, it's it's other isms as well, such as racism or homophobia, etc. And I think if we have things in place where people are a bit more aware, there's maybe this kind of unconscious bias training for coaches, for people who train, mentors, um, selection committees, then things will start to change. And if people say it's an equal playing field because you get to the table and everyone's the same book, but, but it's not. We do start from very different starting points and there's very different opportunities that are given depending on gender and class and other things. I mean, one thing I did love um, hearing was when Brad Moss was was saying that this is an issue. And it's so great when men support this kind of campaign because as a female player, if I say things like this, I'm just perceived and labelled as a troublemaker or an uptight feminist, and I'm easily dismissed. But if the top men players start saying, look, there's an issue and something needs to be done about it, then I think that's great for the game. I don't necessarily agree with his solution. His solution was quite radical about getting rid of the women's game. I think we need to do these other steps first. If we do recognition, awareness and, and inclusivity policy first, And then we can work towards maybe getting rid of the women's game. But if we did that immediately, there would be more damage done in the shorter term than than good. What sort of damage? Some women would just stop playing. You know, you can't suddenly change decades of ingrained sexism and gender inequalities by getting rid of the women's game. The women's game is there to address equity and to make things more equal because there is such a different starting point. And it's not just as simple as you get rid of the women's game and we'll suddenly have equality. So I think you have to have these other things in place first and then move towards it and perhaps promote mixed bridge more. But I think if you start off with something very radical, I think some women would drop out and they wouldn't have somewhere. So you'd sacrifice kind of a generation of uh, women players before things caught up.
0: So it's ingrained on both sides or there's these deep patterns on both sides.
2: Absolutely. And you know, when we talk about sexism, women can be as sexist as men in relation to bridge. And I mean, I used to make sexist jokes at the bridge table a lot because I thought, well, the men are thinking it, so I'll just say it and get it out there. But the consequence of that was that I was othering other women and making it like, well, yeah, other women are weak players, but not me, of course. And I was making jokes about women players, but kind of there was an implication there that but that's not me because I'm competitive and tough and whatever. And I realised that that's just part of perpetuating the cycle and is continuing to feed into those stereotypes. Even though, you know, at the time I was doing it to kind of defend myself and just make sure that I got it out there before. Before they said something sexist, I'd uh, I'd get in there first. Yeah, drawing the sting. Yeah. But, you know, I did realise afterwards that 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 wasn't a good thing to be doing because that just kind of reinforced those that, that banter of sexist jokes. Is not acceptable. I mean, I was at a women's event once where obviously all the men are the male the men are the male captains of of the women's teams, and at the dinner, every table there's a captain's speech, and everyone made a sexist joke about women and blonde players or women players being weaker, etc. And yeah, it it wasn't a great thing to be doing at a, a women's event. But the fact that every single male captain thought that that was acceptable was a bit shocking, really.
0: Over the course of your research, has it affected any aspect of your game? Is there something that you
2: started to internalise or has there been some change in your game? Yeah, I mean, I think particularly when I was doing the interviews with a lot of top women players and they were talking about some very difficult experiences that they'd had, it made me very angry. So sometimes at the table, if I perceived I was being spoken to or treated in a way that was probably because I was being perceived as the weaker female player, and I felt that they probably would not speak to me in that way if I was male. I reacted not very well. Let's put it that way. So, and, and that in the end, I, I quickly realized that I shouldn't do that because the time and place for me to do something about gender equalities is through the research and away from the table. Taking it on board was only going to distract me from the game and give them some imps by me being distracted. As we all know, negative emotions are not good emotions to have at the table. So, yeah, so I, I learned to try and park it and deal with it afterwards. I, I know you, you've talked quite a lot about emotions recently on your podcast. And I do think there is an interesting point that when we talk about emotions at the table, we often refer to women being upset and men being angry. And there is kind of stronger or weaker connotations to those kinds of labels of how we speak about emotions. And that, again, just helps perpetuate that women are, are weak and upset and men are strong and angry. Yeah, there's acceptable emotions for different people depending on their gender.
0: Definitely. If there was one thing that a player could do to maybe try and address this in a day-to-day way in terms of their game and their interactions with other players, what would you suggest?
2: I suppose just being aware of some things that are said can be implicitly sexist. I mean, it's hard to be aware of things. And equally, it's not about making people being so cautious and careful or feeling threatened because it's a topic that is very contentious and gets people's backs up and that's not what we're trying to do. What we're just trying to do is kind of just raise general awareness that the bridge world is lagging behind and we do need to catch up and if we want to get more players we're going to get more younger women players if we kind of address these sorts of issues and we do want, we want fewer women to drop out and and certainly the research has shown that some young girls do drop out because of the male-dominated environments that that they're learning in. Sam, is bridge a sport? I think that's an interesting discussion that could be had there. Um, currently, I'm actually teaching a brand new module which is called the Sociology of Mind Sport, and as far as I know, it's the only module at university of its kind. There's a lot of work done in leisure studies and sports studies. So I suppose what we're trying to develop is mind sports studies and to see where it fits between academically, where it fits between uh, sports studies and leisure studies. But in a non-academic sense, it's where does Bridge fit between being a sport or a leisure activity. So I think there's lots of interesting things there that that can be said about the physical and the mind coming together in Bridge as a mind sport. So Bridge can be physical. As we know, playing a world championship is, is quite physically demanding. But equally, there's a lot of mind issues in physical sports. So I think the two can be entwined quite a lot. Do you
1: have a favorite tournament that you love to play?
2: Yeah, it would be the US Nationals. I really think they should be called the Internationals now rather than Nationals (laughs) because players from all over the world go. And it's just such a fantastic opportunity to play against world-class opposition. I mean, I love playing the Gold or the Vanderbilt. You often don't ask very long and you can get very beaten up, but it's great for your bridge.
0: Some of our listeners have written in asking questions, particularly about visualization and also more specifically about counting. Obviously, the two things are related, but I wonder if you have any suggestions or hacks about how to visualize the hands better
2: and or how to count the hands more easily. Yeah, I mean, For me, I don't necessarily visualize the cards as such. For me, it is about counting out shape and points of the unseen hands. So for example, as soon as a dummy hits, I work out partner's potential point range and possible shapes. And I can do that by either reconstructing their hand or declarer's hand. And I have to move a switch as the game progresses. I switch between working out declarer's hand or partner's hand, depending on what's more known. And then once you've got the shapes, the high card points are easier to place. So yeah, it's about reconstructing the unseen hands. And another thing that helps with that is say partner makes a lead. So you can see what partner's led, you can see dummy, you can see what you've got. It's working out the exact remaining pips. So, and I say those to myself. So if partners say led a club, I work out and say to myself, well, it's the nine, eight and six that are missing in that suit. So then later in the hand, if he plays say the six of clubs I don't have to worry at that point is the six of clubs high or low I remember that it was his lowest possible club so therefore there's suit preference nuances there that I can take from that and I find that kind of thing really helps but with all of these things it's hard and slow to do it when you first start doing it but as long as you practice on every hand and force yourself to do it on every hand it gets quicker that's the big as long as. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard work. I mean, like Justin now, you know, said in, in his interview with me that you have to be disciplined and you have to learn not to be lazy. And working if you work hard on every hand, there's so many things you can work you can work out. But I do think some people don't do that on every hand. But if you do, you'll you'll get quicker at it and, and then it will reap dividends for you. Is it like a fitness? Do you think you get better at it and stronger at it? Definitely. I mean, people talk about being bridge fit and I think that's where the pros have their edge. They play day in, day out. It's very hard for us amateurs who have other, other jobs and, and lives to turn up at a bridge tournament where you're turning up and you're tired. Whereas the bridge pros can be bridge fit. They can be rested before a, an important tournament. They've had plenty of time to read their system. They're not squeezing in their system reading in the evenings or on the plane on the way over. And definitely for the full-time pros, you know, they're doing this day in, day out. So lots of it becomes more automatic and they're not having to work so hard to work things out because they've just seen these situations so many times before. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened while
1: you were playing bridge?
2: Well, it was at the Spring Fours quite a few years ago in England. My partner was in 3 no Trump and he had nine top tricks. But he was so certain because of the bidding and the plague to that point that he could make a couple of overtricks by taking a finesse. So, of course, the finesse lost. And the opposition kept asking, well, where's the ace of spades? Because the ace of spades was going to be his ninth trick. And obviously he had it. But he was so cross at what, had done, what he'd done and what had happened that he couldn't speak. So, the opposition kept asking. So, eventually, I just said, Oh, it, the ace of spades all run on the floor. So, then they started looking for it. And I just found it very funny, but he didn't really <laughs> see the funny side because yeah, it's, it's not a good thing to go off in game at teams. So you might try it at match points, but yeah. But he was so certain the odds, according to him, were so great. So, that would have been an interesting conversation after the game. Yeah, it was quite fun to wind him up a bit about that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What's the strangest, almost unusual or perhaps unexpected place that you've ever played?
2: It's not necessarily a place, um, but it was an interesting opportunity. Um, It was before the Venice Cup in China. I went out a week early to try and find out what China was doing to grow bridge amongst young players because we've seen a lot of young players coming through in China recently. So I visited a, a youth bridge center in Shanghai and played against eight-year-olds and that was quite fun. And then I went to a high school and played against 15-year-olds who I found out at this high school every morning at eight o'clock they have a bridge lesson for half an hour before school starts. Wow. So they are growing their future champions. Wow. Yeah. Um, so a couple of years ago now we launched Bridge and Mind Sport for All And the aim of BAMSA is to work with bridge organizations to use research findings to do three things, to shift the image of bridge, to get more people playing and to make it thrive as a mind sport. So enhance the sustainability of it as a mind sport. And one of the things that we did in, in this journey was last year, we had an international conference that was online. It was going to be face-to-face and we anticipated if it had been in Stirling in Scotland, we'd have probably had maybe 50 participants from three or four countries attending. But because it went online for four days, we got over 500 participants in 62 countries. And we had some fantastic discussions and Many of the presenters did uh, pre-recorded videos and they can all be found on our website as well as the live recordings of the discussions that were had during those four days. And coming out of the, the BAMSA research is a new project on bridge and schools. And we're hoping for that to interview pupils, teachers and parents about why we should try to get bridge into the curriculum in schools for both younger children and older children. And I think An ultimate ambition for BAMSA would be to get mind sport education recognized in the same way that physical education is recognized. In the UK, we have something that's called PE, which stands for physical education. I think people even forget that that's what it stands for. They just talk about PE. And it would be great to have mind sport education introduced to schools on a regular basis that kids can have a choice that they can do physical sports or mind sports or both. But, But at the moment, they currently don't have that choice. And for me, it's about Contributing to healthy aging. We talk about healthy aging and brain fitness, and we think about that for sort of maybe worrying about it over 60. But really, healthy aging and aging well should begin in childhood. And by introducing something like a mind sport to children, we sow the seed. And even if they don't do it much at school, it's something that they can always come back to at any stage later in life. Do
1: you have a favorite
2: convention that you really like to play with your partners? Yeah, I like playing um, three no trump as serious or non-serious slam try. Then When you both know that you've got at least an eight card major fit and you're kind of cubiting a low game, if one of you, like you can play it either way round. but say you play three no trump as serious, then if you bid three no trump, you've got a stronger hand than if you just cubit four clubs. So four clubs would be a mild slam try and three no trump would be the serious slam try. And it just kind of says that you're top of your range or you're good in context for the bidding so far. And it really helps you distinguish who's got extras not before you get to the game level. So you're not risking going above game just to show your extras and risking going off at the five level when you've already shown your extras lower down. Do you prefer serious or non-serious 3-no-Trump? There is a slight technical benefit to playing 3-no-Trump as non-serious because if you've got this weaker hand and you bid 3-no-Trump, you haven't started cubiting and giving away more information about your hand. So if neither of you got extras, you can just sign off afterwards. But for me personally, so long as partner remembers, I'm happy to play what they're more likely to remember because that helps my stress levels.
1: <laughs> is there a convention that you particularly dislike and don't
2: want to play and think it's a waste of time? Minorwood. For me, Minorwood is like glorified Gerber. And people are often rude about Gerber, but for me, you know, minor wood's just the same because it's also about trying to ask for aces lower down in the auction. But again, it takes away that dialogue you have with partner about who's got extras or what what cues exist, et cetera. And it's also very prone to mishaps where one person thinks it's minor wood and the other one doesn't. So I'm just really not a fan.
1: (laughs) These are all very familiar conversations. (laughs) (laughs) Catherine doesn't think it's worth learning.
0: <laughs> I just think I've got enough that I'm not remembering already about our sister.
2: I think you have to have very strict rules if you do play it about yes. when it applies and when it doesn't. But even then, I played it in a partnership where we had extremely strict rules about when it did not didn't apply and still it came up with situations where one would interpret it differently. So oh, yeah.
1: it's just not worth I it. I know. And I play it with quite a few different partners, each one with different strict rules. <laughs> so it gets to be a mess. but I still like it. It's
2: not worth the memory strain.
1: What
0: is the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given?
2: There's been lots of tips over the years. One of the very early pieces of advice I got when I was playing a lot within Scotland was if I wanted to improve my game, I had to play outside Scotland and play outside my comfort zone. And that was a very good piece of advice. In what way? The more you can play outside your comfort zone, so you can play against different European countries or, you know, say you go to the States and you play against a whole range of different top players, you get more accustomed to different systems, you get more comfortable with different ways of bidding and you learn a lot. And as I said before, you know, our country is quite small and we don't have much training and coaching. So for me, playing outside Scotland was kind of compensating for that lack of training within the country itself.
0: Sam, thank you for joining us today.
2: It was really great talking to you. Thanks so much. It's just been fascinating. And thank you both. It's been a lot of fun, and thanks for inviting me. And that's the
0: show. Many thanks to our guest, Samantha Punch. Sorry, Partner is produced by Catherine Harris. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Startz and produced
1: by Daniel Graboy. Thank you also to our friend, Larry Cohen. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram, or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show. These links and a link to our merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your
0: finesses be on side. And remember, as Samantha says, take time to play outside of your comfort zone. Thank you, partner.
1: (laughs) Thank you, partner. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.